You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning, Illini Life, and welcome back to our digital Sunday service. We're now in our fourth week of this, and it's, it's starting to feel normal to me. Now, I've, I've struggled with that statement a lot this week because I don't want this to feel normal. I don't want this to be our normal. I long to be together with you. I want to be on campus worshiping and studying the word together. I imagine many of you do as well. You know, this week I have grieved the loss of so many fun and exciting things that we get to do together here at the end of the school year. So many of you are graduating and heading off to hopeful careers, grad school, other, uh, other avenues of life. And we don't get a chance to say goodbye in person. We've lost that opportunity. I wish we could be together to send you off to those things, to say goodbye once and for all. To see you off to future endeavors. But that's not our present reality. It's not our circumstances. Our current circumstances, so often, they have felt like a setback to many of us. I know they have for me in many ways. You know, when we initially got the news that the university was doing everything online and, and everybody needed to stay home and, and social distancing, I wondered, I wondered, how do we do ministry when we can't meet in person? How do we share the gospel with people when we can't gather in person, when we can't meet and build relationships with them? Everything, everything I have grown accustomed to in building God's kingdom and being part of the church and in being the church over the past 20 years, everything feels like it has gone out the window. Everything has changed in an instant. And most days I have felt like I am on house arrest, longing to leave, but you're not supposed to. Maybe you can relate. I've wondered, I've wondered at times, how effective can ministry be like this? How long can we go on like this? How long can social can the church endure in social distancing? And as I've wondered about this, the Lord has often brought me back to, consistently brought me back to, the life of the Apostle Paul. And I've shared some of that in past weeks. Paul, he was actually in prison. He was actually on house arrest on several occasions in his ministry, and yet the Lord did great things through his ministry. There was much fruit out of the life and ministry of Paul. Paul was the original social distancing pastor. I take comfort in that. Well, last week on Easter, we began our sermon series on the book of Colossians. Here we saw that Paul lay a foundation for the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in our lives as he began this letter. And these next three weeks, we're going to see ways that we are called to respond to live out that in our life. How do we live with this foundation of Christ supreme? Jesus is greater than the supremacy of Christ in our lives. That's the series we're in. That's what we're referring to it. Let's dive in and see how we are to respond in light of this 
Jesus being greater, Jesus as the ultimate, is greater than everything else. You know, having established the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of his sacrifice in the opening of the letter, Paul takes a very strange turn here in the letter. He's going to start talking about himself. He's, remember, he's writing to a church he doesn't know. He's writing to encourage them, and now he's spending time talking about himself. I mean, I think he does this for two primary reasons. And as we saw last week, Paul has never been to the church he's writing to. They don't know him. He didn't plant this church. He's not familiar with them. He hasn't written before, like, like we encounter a lot of his other letters in the New Testament, churches he's well aware of or know, know him. It's likely they've heard of him, but he has heard of them, and he is moved by their circumstances. He is moved by their faith. He longs to write and strengthen them, and so he does. He takes some time to establish here in the, in the passage, he takes some time to establish himself, his ministry, his motives, his desire to serve the Lord. And with it, he focuses on himself as an example of a life and ministry living out the supremacy of Christ. Paul serves in as an example of a life living with Jesus as supreme here in our passage. Well, that's the background, the high-level view of our passage this morning. We're going to look at our passage in two parts as we try to answer this big question. How do we respond to the supremacy of Christ? How do we live in light of Jesus being ultimate? What should a life focused on Jesus look like? That's the question we're trying to answer these next few weeks. That's the question Paul is addressing in this letter. In part one, we're going to see Paul talk broadly about his ministry and its purpose. In part two, We'll see him talk specifics of how that ministry serves the local church, those in Colossae that he's writing to, those he cares for, he's been moved to encourage and strengthen. So with that, let's tackle part one. Let's dive in. Here we're going to look at uh, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. And in it, we're going to see Paul string together a whole bunch of thoughts, unpack specifics of his ministry. Let's read. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Wow. There is a, a lot going on there, right? If you had trouble tracking what is going on, that is totally normal. I have reread this passage so many times in the last six months and in, in the last week, just trying to grasp it, trying to wrap my head around what is Paul saying, all this, this thought. I've diagrammed this sentence to try to see it visually and understand his, 
this flow of thought. I've read commentaries. I've looked at paraphrases. I've looked at other translations just trying to wrap my head around it. There are so many commas and continuations of thought. It's just so easy for us to get lost. Now, this is not uncommon for Paul, though, is it? If we've read Paul, we've seen him do this elsewhere in his writing. It almost feels like stream of consciousness or free thought association as he he says one word and then expounds on it and just keeps going that phrase for phrase. It's almost like one of those Russian nested dolls where he keeps taking off parts of the argument, peeling back the layers as he's revealing his ultimate meaning, his, his true statement down deep. Now, in Greek, what we just read, that is one long thought, one flowing, continuous thought, one sentence, right? Uh, most of our English Bibles, they put a period or two in there because it's hard for us English, uh, native English speakers to track. If we wrote like this, we would get an F on our papers, right? It was a run-on sentence uh, to uh, rewrite, re- reword. This is poor English, but this is good Greek. This is good, good thought, flowing thought, easy, easier to follow in Greek, certainly easier for them to follow than it is for us. As native Greek speakers, they would have maybe caught this a little easier. Let's break this down and, and, and see where Paul's after. I think it'll help us to sort of take it chunk by chunk a little bit. Well, Paul, he starts by telling us he rejoices in his sufferings because they are for the sake of the church. Seeing Christ as supreme and sufficient, and his sacrifice as sufficient, Paul surveys his present circumstances. He looks around his prison cell, and he rejoices. He rejoices because through them, Christ is being made known. He rejoices because he sees the trials and setbacks he is enduring that he is facing as part of God's bigger plan. That's what verse 24, that's the crux of it. That's what he's saying in verse 24. Now there's this confusing phrase though, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. And I think this deserves our attention. I know many of you asked about this in small groups this week and, and I heard about that. It's a good catch. It's a confusing phrase. And some of us as we read this, we just kind of gloss over it because Paul is so rapid fire saying these phrases and it's hard to follow him. Some of us, we, we, we caught it and we thought, what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Isn't Christ sufficient? Isn't that what Paul started with in this letter? So it would be confusing for us. Paul is not saying here that anything needs to be added to Christ's sacrifice. There's nothing lacking in Christ's sacrifice, right? It is sufficient. We established that last week. That's where Paul began. Rather, Paul is rejoicing because he believes that the trials and setbacks he faces are filling up the necessary opposition the church must endure before Christ returns. As we face hardship, or what seem like setbacks in ministry or trials as believers, we can join with Paul in rejoicing that Christ can still be made known through our circumstances and that God's sovereign plan to bring his kingdom still marches on. One day, Christ will return and bring again 
his kingdom in full. When we endure suffering, we help take a step closer to that, to that reality. That's what Paul has in view. That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's trying to express in this filling up idea. The bringing about of Christ's second return, his kingdom in full. Well, Paul, he continues on in his run-on thought process, uh, and he reminds them that he is a minister of the word of God. And the purpose of that is to reveal the mystery hidden for generations. Christ, God revealing mystery, that is a key theme for the Apostle Paul here in this letter and throughout his theology in general. You can read it all over the New Testament. You see, as the Apostle to the Gentiles, he had a front row seat to what God was doing that most Jews at the time thought was sacrilege. God's inclusion of Gentiles into the family of God without them adhering to the cultural Jewish laws, that was unthinkable to to a good faith-professing Jew. Paul describes this as the great mystery God was working towards throughout all time. Jesus welcoming all people into God's family. And here, Paul is showing a consistent, overarching story of God from Genesis to Revelation, revealing Jesus. Everything pointing to Jesus. The mystery of what God was doing throughout the Old Testament became known in Jesus. God's desire to be among his creation again was realized in Christ. His desire to form a great nation, a people of God, came about through Jesus' inauguration of a kingdom without borders, the kingdom of God. God's ultimate masterpiece is Christ in you. God's work in humanity since the fall has been towards Christ in you. His grand plan to redeem humanity and make us friends once again, is completed in Christ. The great mystery revealed to all was God reaching all people, all nations, all generations for Christ. Christ in you, that is what we strive for as your leaders and your pastor. We pour out all of our God-given energy and talents and resources to see Christ in you. We give ourselves to see you fully mature in Christ. That's our hope and our goal. Just like Paul, we toil and struggle to see that reality. In fact, all those, all those who have served in the church, that serve in the church, in some way are motivated to give themselves to this work. That's what gets us going, what gets us involved in in the work of the church. Christ in us ignites a fire to see Christ in others. That's what Paul is talking about. And that fire, that, that feeling, seeing that, it's intoxicating. Seeing someone go from death to life to make the choice to follow Jesus, to fully know him, that is the greatest form of riches we can ever invest in. Seeing Christ fully known in others is the greatest form of success you will ever achieve in life. Nothing trumps it. Join with us in the work of the church, if you haven't already. Find a place to serve. Contribute to the work of Christ being made known in the church. 
We'd love to have you. It's work worth giving your life to. It's work work that excites, that motivates. It's work that gets me up out of bed in the morning. Let's let's continue on. Let's, Let's see where Paul takes the rest of this concept where he goes in part two of our passage. Here, we're going to see Paul go from his general talk about ministry to the specifics of how that is for the local church, those in Colossae that he's writing. Let's read. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have, been, who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. So here, Paul does that same thing of sort of stringing along ideas, right? It's hard to follow. But his thought process, it parallels that of the previous section. They're parallel parts. He's making it specific. He's making his thought process specific to the church at Colossae and then their neighboring church down the road at Laodicea. He's telling them that the work of striving to see Christ fully known in others is done on their behalf as well. It's done for them even though they've never met in person. Even those that don't know Paul personally benefit from his work that's his point here. We can testify to that truth, can't we? None of us has personally met the Apostle Paul, but his work preserved on the pages of the New Testament still shapes our faith and reveals Christ today, doesn't it? 2,000 years later, we are studying it and being pointed to Christ. Just as the letter shapes our faith and points us to Christ, now it did for them then. It did for those in Colossae. Now, at the time he is writing, he's not aware that he's writing a letter that's going to stand the test of time that we will be reading some 2,000 years later. He's he's, He's doing his work for God with his focus on those he's trying to reach and strengthen there in Colossae. His focus is on them. He's not seeking to write scripture or be grandiose and and add to the Bible. He's not thinking much of himself. Paul is writing a very personal letter from his prison cell to a church that needs strengthening and encouraging. With that, we see a compassionate heart. We see a Christ-centered and motivated heart. He's working on their behalf to see Christ fully known in their lives. Paul's work, it's to see lives transformed for Jesus. And here he refers to it as as hearts encouraged in verse 2, right? But but that phrase, it it lacks some of the full force of of the words in, in Greek. He's not struggling so that they have pleasant feelings or, or feel uplifted. No, that, that's not what he means. His words, they carry a much stronger meaning, a, a deeper, forceful meaning. He's talking about, about lives that are deeply touched and affected to all aspects of their being. Total life transformation. 
That's what he means. That's what his words mean. Hearts, hearts and courage. It, it works here. It's, it's good English. It's a good rendering of that. Uh, but it's muted and dull. It, 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 it lacks something. Paul is saying something so much more intense and meaningful than that. Hearts and courage. It's, it's like someone who won the lottery saying, yeah, I got a few extra bucks. That's a true statement. They do. But there is a lot more truth than that in their reality. Total life transformation. That's the, that's the total truth of what Paul is talking about. Hearts Encouraged misses that a little bit. Total life transformation. It happens through, through coming to full knowledge and understanding of Christ. That's what Paul says, and that's what he points to. As a result, we will live, he says, unified in love with our fellow believers. Our hearts changed. The supremacy of Christ transforms hearts for all who come to know him. Christ in you is living with Jesus as supreme. It results in total life transformation, which is characterized in part by living a life of loving unity with those around us. Paul is struggling for that kind of life and faith for the church in Colossae, and he's doing it for us as well. His words are preserved. He wants them to know Jesus as their sufficient sacrifice and supreme over all things, above all the hollow philosophies and empty religious practices that they are being tempted with, that they are encountering in their midst. Living with that perspective, that will keep them with Christ supreme, that will keep them from being led astray and deluded by these plausible arguments these, these others are, are offering. So it is with us. Focusing on fully knowing Christ, seeing him as sufficient and supreme, doesn't leave room for us to be swayed by lesser religions or flashy new spiritualities. Paul's words to them are the same to us. Focus on Christ and you won't be led astray. You know, in, in some ways, the false teachings, the plausible arguments that we encounter today are not that much different than those that the Colossians are facing. You know, Jesus is just one way of many to get to God. That's a common false teaching of our day, maybe the dominant false teaching of our day. That's just another incarnation of Jesus among a pantheon of gods, the Greek synchronous religion that these believers were facing. Now, Jesus saves me, but, but I also have to attend church regularly and, and do the right religious practices and read my Bible often and have the right theological framework to, to really be saved. Uh, that, that's a common thinking, maybe not explicitly, but a common way of living for all of us today. That too, that too is just a reincarnation of the Jesus plus the religious law, false teachings that the Colossians are likely encountering that Paul is correcting. Their false teachings aren't that different than ours today. You know, as I've thought about it, one of the, one of the more uh, prominent false teachings or false argument landmines that we encounter in our academic setting, it's, it's we are tempted, we can be tempted or swayed by exciting new discoveries or ways of interpreting the text. 
You know, as educated individuals, we highly value academics, and we are more prone to put weight and trust on things that sound scholarly. Things that reveal hidden meaning and the scripture or reveal special understanding we otherwise would have missed if it weren't for our sharpness and academic prowess. And I pat ourselves on the back. We have figured it out because we're so bright. And one common way I see this and it's repeated throughout church history has been allegorizing scripture, finding special or hidden meaning, putting symbols to it. It's like uncovering one example, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, saying this is, is a story that's really an allegory. It's really about Jesus and the church. That's what, that's what Jesus was after. And it's been a, this has been a, a popular line of thinking throughout church history. It pops up often. See, it, it sees elements in this parable as, as symbolic and, and elsewhere in Scripture. They really mean something else. They don't mean what they do at, at face value. So to uncover the real meaning, what Jesus really was communicating, we need to see what, what these symbols really were. And so, so we see that the man who was going down and traveling and was, and was robbed and beaten, that's really Adam, that's humanity, right? And Jerusalem, where he was going, that's paradise. And he was coming from Jericho, that's the world. The robbers, they were, they're the hostile powers of, of the world. The priests, that's the law. That, that, that passes by. The Levite, that's the, the prophets, they pass by him as well. The Samaritan, well, the good Samaritans, that, that's Jesus. The wounds that were inflicted on, on humanity, that, that's just that's disobedience, that's sin in our lives. And that the animal that, that is used to carry the wounded man to the end, that's the body of Christ carrying us towards salvation. The end, that's the, where he's, he's placed and, and healed. That, that's the church, because the church is for the healing of all that are welcome. And his promise, the Good Samaritan's promise to return, that's Jesus' promise to return again. Right? This is an that's allegory. It's saying this means that, special symbols, artificial meanings, arbitrary assignments. But with that special knowledge, with that, that studious work of, of finding these symbols and their meaning, we can see that, that this is really about not Jesus answering, who is my neighbor and how should we live loving our neighbors? That's not what Jesus is after. No, with this special meaning, we know that this is about how humanity was beaten by the hostile powers of the world, how sin has, has led us into disobedience, and how the Jewish law and prophets, they were useless to help us. And along came Jesus to fix us and repair us. The church welcomes and cares for us, and Jesus promises to return again. Now, allegorizing, that's, that's what this is, what that was. It's, it's problematic problematic because it's not it's at least in this case that's not necessarily bad theology those are those are maybe accurate conclusions about about Jesus his effectiveness in in defeating sin and healing us but it's absolutely not what Jesus is teaching in that parable but it appeals to our special knowledge and our, our scholarly side that wants to study and see hidden meaning uncover truth it's a wrong interpretation, and allegory often arbitrarily assigns meaning and symbols where they're not found in Scripture. Being tempted to allegorize the text and, and assign meanings and symbols where they're not there, to uncover hidden meaning or, or special understanding of Scripture, that's our plausible argument and false teaching of our day. I see it often 
And it's, it's veiled in, in commentaries and all kinds of other things, study Bibles even at times. We safeguard ourselves against this by keeping our focus on Christ. It prevents us from being led astray by false teaching or, or ideologies. It keeps us from making much of ourselves and our interpretive skills, our academic prowess, to unlock special knowledge, to unlock what the text is truly saying. That's our false teaching, often. Let us, let, let us keep focusing on Christ, that we're not deluded or led away by plausible arguments or false teaching. That's Paul's point. Keep your focus on Christ. And he wraps up, the apostle wraps up this segment of the letter by reminding his readers that he is not, why he is not with them in body, he is with them in spirit. And he affirms the genuineness of their faith, the steadfastness of their faith. He reveals his confidence in their standing before Christ and their strength of their faith. They will continue on and endure. Despite the circumstances they face, he is confident their faith will remain strong. A line of life, just like Paul, despite being absent in body, we are gathered in spirit. We remain together, and I am confident that Christ in you will carry you forward through this. I am confident in that because I have seen the power of Christ in you. I am encouraged by your devotion to search the scriptures and encounter Jesus there. I am strengthened by your serving of one another in trying times. I am lifted up by your faith and trust in Jesus to carry us through this. So let us keep our focus on Christ, and by doing so, we will preserve our faith in trying times. Christ fully known is our focus, and it safeguards our faith. In our passage this morning, we saw Paul serving as an example of living out a Christ-centered life, living with Christ as supreme. He's letting Christ be sufficient and supreme in his life and his actions they follow. He doesn't build himself up. He doesn't boast about his accomplishments. Instead, he rejoices in the setbacks and sufferings of his day, trusting that God's plan is coming together. It is moving forward. He only needs to play his part by remaining faithful to the work he's called to do. Just like Paul, just like for Paul, our identity and worth are to be measured by our faithfulness to God and his wider plan. His plan to redeem all while Paul can't be with them in person to build up their faith and make Christ known, he can write them. He can pick up a pen in his prison cell and write them, and so he does. Faithfulness for him looked like picking up a pen and writing a letter. Faithfulness for me this week, it looked like turning on my cell phone camera to share this message with you. Maybe for you, faithfulness this week looks like checking in on that friend of yours who doesn't know Christ, but you know is lonely and isolated in this time. 
Maybe, maybe you want to FaceTime with them to care for them in this strange time. Be the love of Christ to those who need it now. For all of us, for all of us, faithfulness looks like first fully knowing Christ ourselves. Christ fully known in our lives safeguards us in trying times which we are enduring. And then, and then from there, we have the privilege of making Christ fully known in others' lives. As we share about him, as we share about the hope that we have, and how we're making it through. And in all circumstances, in all circumstances, we can be like Paul. We can rejoice in the suffering we endure, because we know God's kingdom marches on, and all we need to do is remain faithful to him and his call in our lives. Will you pray with me?